Stay hungry, stay foolish. The world around us is changing rapidly. There is now more pressure on established companies to innovate. The challenge most companies face is how to develop new products for new markets while managing their core business at the same time. The principles and practices outlined in today's show provide companies with a blueprint of how to manage innovation while they execute on their core business. The corporate startup provides frameworks, visualizations, templates, tools and methods that can be easily applied to develop new products and business models. We welcome author of The Corporate Startup, How Established Companies Can Create Successful Innovation Ecosystems, Dan Toma. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Before we start today's show, just a reminder to sign up to the Innovation Show newsletter on theinnovationshow.io. Dan has kindly offered us a copy of The Corporate Startup book, and access to the Corporate Startup video course worth €480 on thecorporatestartupbook.com. So, Dan, thank you for that in advance. No worries. My pleasure. And while I'm in the thanking mode, thanks to our sponsor for today's show, Microsoft for Startups. So let's get down to it, Dan. And I wanted to start with a comment by the former CEO of Nokia, who admitted that it is sometimes difficult in a big, successful organization to have a sense of urgency and hunger. No company can defend only. If you have a high market share, and you're a market leader, if you start defending, you cannot sustain. Nokia's former CEO also remarked later that established companies can only change when they have a charismatic leader or a crisis. And you respectfully disagree with this notion, because by the time a crisis or a charismatic leader comes along, it's often too late to respond. We've been seeing this over the past months, right, with the, with the corona crisis. Here's the crisis. Here's the burning platform, if you want. Now the companies that were not set up to defend against change or to work within a new paradigm, they're having a hard time. In general, when we're talking about transformation, generally talk about change, I would usually bet on the companies that have a system rather than on the companies that rely on hero and heroics. Unfortunately, for most companies, they just rely on that one great player or on that one great idea to make it big. Historically, you say management teaching has tended to focus on strategy as a method for finding long-term competitive advantages. Once a competitive advantage has been found, managers then go about protecting it through good financial management and operational excellence. In contrast, contemporary management thinking recognizes that companies should be managed to quickly exploit current competitive advantages and move on to the next advantage. And you tell us here, in order to do that, companies need to use the right management frameworks. It's just too simplistic to advise established companies to act like startups. What's happening is that the world is changing too fast for you to actually develop something and then just defend it for the next couple of decades. I think the competitive advantage of large organizations that are successful in today's world comes from their systems. So their sustainable competitive advantage is their ability to transform. Their sustainable competitive advantage is their ability to innovate and stay relevant. 
And the other big advantages to this is that this is very easily defendable. Nobody can copy your system. Nobody can copy your culture. Whether in the past, if you were just creating one product, obviously you're not hoping for that, but you could see that a competitor was just coming into your market, just copying everything you were doing all the way down to the details of the product or your sales strategy. And all of a sudden they were there eating away at your market share. If you, on the other hand, invest in your system, if you, on the other hand, invest in, in the people in the company, in the culture, if you invest in, in having people with the right mindset on the, on the team, those things are defendable. Those things are actually sustainable over a longer period than just, just investing in a product. So I think that most companies should focus primarily on their internal system and their value creation system rather than on one single product or one single business model. And those people listening to the show who work in larger organizations or who are in leadership in larger organizations know the way it goes. You're in a board meeting, maybe one of the board members says, oh, we need to act more like a startup. But as you say, as Steve Blank says, as Alex Osterwalder says, you can't act like a startup because you have to mind the business as it is today or it was yesterday and explore new businesses as they are tomorrow. Large organizations should not be confused with startups and startups should not be confused with large organizations. My background is in startups and I was VP of sales for a startup. And I know that the investors there were saying that we will only get a financing round if we build a strong sales team. Despite the fact me being the, the VP of sales, I was always against that idea because the startup didn't yet found its value. Its value proposition was not strong enough. We end up hiring a lot of people just to get that financing round. And that actually was a very poor decision because our runway was just way shorter now with all those people on board. So what was happening is that the investors were advising us to be more like a large organizations and actually we were a startup. And the same mistake I've seen when I was with a large organization, people were telling us, management was telling us, be more like startups. Well, we can't because we have an existing user base to serve. We have an existing brand we need to defend. I cannot go there and create an experiment and damage a brand which is world recognized as one of the top three brands in the world. I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience as the VP of sales for a startup because that's a common problem that you haven't actually found your product yet. And that's the sole focus is to find a sustainable product. And then you bring in the VP of sales, all the pressure goes on the VP of sales, you end up selling products that somebody will buy rather than the actual right product for your business. And this is where the decline comes. And as you say, that runway is coming and it's getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, it was one of the biggest issues we had in this company. We were, we were obviously, we weren't onto something. So we had a product. However, we were not really sure how to, how to engage with our audience. I mean, we were seeing a lot of people were coming to the website, creating an account, staying in a trial for 30 days, and then all of a sudden, a huge drop. We were expecting a drop, but not 99% drop or 95% drop. So for me, it meant that our value proposition was not 100% right yet. But then the investors were pushing us, you need more sales because if your conversion rate is 5%, it means that uh, it's a numbers game. So you need to add a lot of people on at the beginning of the funnel. 
is that old saying, nothing kills a bad product faster than good marketing. So this was exactly <laughs> what we were doing. We were, we were essentially throwing money at the problem instead of throwing brains. So basically, instead of focusing on solving the value proposition and identifying the right value, the right features, the right everything for our customers, we were just saying, okay, let's add more customers in the pipeline. And actually, that took a toll on the, on the, on the runway and ended up taking a huge toll on the company. For someone who doesn't understand startups, sales is a metric they do understand. And metrics are a huge part of the problem for legacy organizations, for large organizations as well when it comes to innovation, because measurement of new business models within organizations can kill a budding killer product. Success with known business models can be measured using traditional metrics like profit, return on investment, or AOR, accounting rate of return, and net present value. But searching, which is what you talk about, has to be measured in an entirely different way. We're working on a new book now. It's called Innovation Accounting. You can check out our progress on innovationaccountingbook.com from the corporate startup where we had one chapter in innovation accounting. Now we want to blow it up to one book because it's just a topic that you need to talk about it at large, at scale, not just in a chapter. Essentially, what's happening in large organizations is that in their pursuit of optimization, they are using a one-size-fits-all for almost everything. It's a one-size-fits-all for how much you're allowed to spend on a hotel, and it's a one-size-fits-all to how you measure a product. And the one-size-fits-all is usually tailored to the most profitable business in the portfolio, which is usually the legacy business, which is usually the business that the brand stands for. If you're a telecommunication company, it's probably your core telco products. If you're a bank, it's probably credits or whatever else you're doing there. But searching is totally different. My co-author, Tendai, keeps saying that you should ask the right question at the right time. Essentially, this is how a metric system needs to look in a large organization. You need to have stage gates, and for every stage gate, you need to change the questions you're asking, the KPIs you're using. Monthly recurrent revenue, annual recurrent revenue, these are great KPIs. However, they should only be used once you are later in the on the maturity scale once you once you've uncovered the value proposition you know that people want to have that problem solved and so on and so forth it sounds very trivial for a startup investor right i've been a startup investor i've been in startups we were never being asked questions such as what is your monthly recurrent revenue two weeks after we launched we were primarily asked questions regarding okay how many people confirm that they have this problem? Do you have any evidence that this is a big problem that people from outside your domestic geography suffer from and so on and so forth? Relevant questions for our maturity stage. You know, you're talking about parenting, you're talking about raising kids. You're not going to go to a five-year-old and ask them how fast they can run 100 meters. I mean, I mean, you are going to ask them that question. That question is right, but then your benchmark should be for other five-year-olds not Usain Bolt running 100 meters. And the five-year-old is going to tell you what they think you want to hear, not what they believe. Exactly. So that's a big issue. And I think, uh, I think organizations should move away from one-size-fits-all because in one-size-fits-all, you're not going to be able to take in. There is a law in, uh, in cybernetics. It's called the Ashby Law, coming from William Ross Ashby. It says that 
if a system is to be stable, the number of states of its control mechanism must be greater or equal than the number of states in the system being controlled. What does this essentially mean for organizational design and for frameworks and systems, the things we're talking about, is that you cannot hope to control a diverse and ever-changing world, which is the market, if your internal systems are very monolithic, are very one-size-fits-all. So many listeners of the show are corporate innovators and those people that you address in this book. And one of the huge problems for leadership in large organizations and something they probably just tick the box with is where they should invest in innovation. And the debate is often around where and how those investments should be made. And what I mean by that is should an innovation unit or innovation team be physically separated from the main business or can innovation be managed within the company? And you say in the book, the feeling is that by creating innovation labs, managers can separate innovators from the toxic environment within the company. But these labs fail because companies do not build any management processes around them, allowing innovators to work on whatever they want. There is a common tendency to conflate creativity with innovation. Management sees successful startups coming up with great new products and this motivates managers to pursue the development of similarly cool shiny new products via R&D labs, incubators and accelerators. But creating new products is not innovation and many corporate innovation labs are just innovation theater. First of all, I believe that innovation is everybody's job in a company. I don't, I don't believe that some people should innovate and some people should not. The only difference is that on some people's agenda, innovation is higher up. On some other people's, it's just lower in the, let's say, to-do list. Uh, however, I'm strongly against the idea of lab. I, I'm yet to see a company which is building successful products just by having a lab. I think the labs are great. I think companies should continue doing labs. But don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't bet the entire farm on the lab. Why? Because for a company that's 10,000, 100,000, 400,000 people, the lab becomes a bottleneck. The lab can attend to so many ideas, right? But there's always going to be a lot of ideas which are left out. So I think that the company should strive to create an internal system that looks beyond the idea of a lab. The lab should continue to exist, but be morphed uh, or be changed to, to mimic more technology labs rather than business labs. Again, a lot of organizations just look at startups and say, hey, startups in the startup world, in the outside world, there, there are these this things called accelerators. We're going to do an internal one. Yeah, but you need to understand that the outside world also has multiple investors and the outside world has way more ideas than you have internally. So don't build a lab. That would be my advice. And again, I think it's a mindset issue in most large organizations. So you have to address that with training. You need to address that with people cross-pollinating and learning one from the other rather than separating one unit or one group of people from the core Otherwise, you're going to run the risk of these people being hated by the people in the core. And one of my favorite examples here is the Yahoo Brick House. 
Yahoo was probably one of the first companies that said, oh yeah, we're going to build a lab and we're going to send it outside of the core because we don't see them being able to thrive and succeed there. And they send it off to the brick house in the center of San Francisco. And in six months, eight months time, everybody at the headquarters was hating the guts of the people in the brick house and ended up shutting it down. It ended up being a, a huge cultural mess for Yahoo to clean up. This is what Clayton Christensen talked about, may you rest in peace, about the sucking sound of the core dragging you back in. But also then you have, as you say, for example, somebody sent on secondment to the lab, so they get a flavor of the lab, and then they go back and they report back to the core that all those guys do is sit around on beanbags and what a great life they have while we're paying for it over here. So you can see it from both sides. You can see why that toxicity breeds. And, and actually, one of the whole ideas to keep them separate is so they don't become toxic, but then they become the cause of that toxicity. Exactly. So I'm, I'm all for integrating the lab in the headquarters, and I'm all for destroying the lab. In my opinion, I think this is based on what, uh, what Steve Blank was writing about a couple of years ago. He was saying that, that the signpost for organization that failed at innovation is going to be having a lab. <laughs> so if you have a lab that's a signpost that, hey, the, the, way your, the way your innovation is structured and framed there doesn't work. And I couldn't agree more. And I think that the, the, the purpose of the lab is uh, the end purpose, the end goal of the lab is to actually disrupt itself. An organization succeeds at innovation and succeeds at having an embedded culture of innovation once they no longer need the lab. So in essence, the, the, the job of a lab is for them to no longer exist. I worked in a very legacy organization and the way I kind of articulated it was, I was head of innovation, was that instead of a lab or even a digital team being a vertical within the business, they need to be a horizontal. So the pillar that they are needs to topple over and integrate into the rest of the organization and be a positive vampire and change the mindset of those other people throughout the organization. Because back to that idea of mixing people together, when people mix and they have these kind of conversations that spark up around the water cooler, that's when the ideas start to share. That's when you mix the legacy with the new and you can actually solve real business problems. This is why just keeping people keeping people separated, keeping people outside in another building in another in another zip code if you want, that's not the way forward. And again, most large organizations that have been on that path, they actually close down their labs. So recently, a pharma company in, in Europe has done the same. They basically took took the idea of the lab and they integrated in existing business units because that's the only way you can ensure that the product that's being created in the lab gets adopted by client business unit because in a business unit, that's where a product can scale. It cannot scale in the lab. The lab is good for agility, for speed, for uncovering what people want, but not for scale. So scale needs to happen in, in an established organization where you have the doers with the right mindset of doing and scaling stuff. The searchers, the people in the lab, they are great for, for, for some things, but not for everything. So I think it was a great decision to, to integrate that within, within a business unit. And I'm all for closing down the labs and take the lessons learned and make sure that everybody in the organization understands that innovation is everybody's job. Not just yeah. not just a selected group, young people that like to dress up in hula shirts and wear sneakers. It might be higher up on some people's agenda and lower on some, some other people's agenda. But uh, at the end of the day, if we want to succeed, everybody needs to do it. I'm actually concerned about lab 
workers at the moment. So not the idea of the lab, but the people working there, because we're in this time of crisis and most likely facing into an economic downturn. And during those times, the theatre labs, so that what Steve Blank talks about and you talk about, the idea of innovation theatre labs, they get scaled down. So we're really going to see who is real about their innovation during these times. But it could be a great opportunity to integrate those people, like you say. I'm all for that. And I've been supporting organizations that are on that path. And I've been supporting organizations that said, hey, we, we, we had a lab. We want to scale this. We want to do transformation. I'm primarily working now in Scandinavia and I'm doing corporate-wide transformations there. And I would say the Scandinavian market is fairly mature, or at least more mature than I'm seeing it in Central Europe or Southern Europe. I cannot speak for Asia or Australia or North America, but I'm seeing them being more mature because they are, they've already tried the labs and they've seen the, the positives and the negatives. They know they want to do full-on corporate transformations, changing everything top to bottom and integrating the lessons learned in the lab in the processes, in the value creation processes within the established business units. And what does that look like, Dan? So what, you know, you say you're supporting them. What kind of work, for example, that you can share with us? Essentially, there's three, four pillars we are helping them with. One of them is innovation strategy. You cannot talk about creating innovation or living off innovation, meaning that you're going to have successful innovation products coming out if you don't have a very clear strategy. We actually outline that in the book as well. We, we say that every company should have an, uh, an innovation thesis. Essentially, it's uh, basically the investment thesis concept from the VC world taking and applied internally in the in the company. So that's that's one stream of work. Then obviously every company should create their product lifecycle, their innovation framework, because that actually is going to help with the KPIs, it's going to help with the skill, that's going to help with the process or the methodologies that are being used. Early stage requires one thing and, and later stage requires something else. So creating the product lifecycle that everybody agrees on in the company, it's very important. And then obviously capability development, right? People, it's good that you have the process, it's good that people know about it, but they need to be trained to follow the process and, and be disciplined in following that. And then later on, we'll talk about culture, leadership development, and, uh, and innovation accounting, how do we measure all, all the things that we've created. So these this usually are projects that last anything from three to five years. So you cannot expect to change a 15,000, 50,000 people company within uh, within one year or two. And it requires a lot of leadership support. And I would say that in Scandinavia, I found most leaders being very supportive of innovation and very supportive of transformation, unlike in more conservative countries, like I would say Germany or France or, or even, even Spain or Italy. It probably shows a little bit about the cultures of those countries as well, where innovation exists. I wrote an article about it recently about how the difference between innovation theater and true transformation. And I, I use the analogy of if you think about breakfast, so the idea of bacon and eggs, the hen is involved, but the pig is absolutely committed. <laughs> so this is what is actually needed. You need and we're gonna we're really gonna see who is living up to that mindset. Yeah, you're right. I mean, everybody, my professor of entrepreneurship was saying this in the MBA, that if you enter a deal, we should decide if we're pigs together or chickens together or hens together, uh, right? So if we're if we're all committed on this, we're, we're all involved in this, but it's, it's going to be difficult 
for, for a party to be committed and not one involved. And I believe that in, in some organizations, unfortunately, the people in the lab are very much committed to innovation and very much committed to transforming the legacy organization and, and helping it survive in the future and come up with new offerings. And on the other hand, some of the leaders are just involved in innovation, saying that, yeah, we support innovation, but it's just written on the annual report in a couple of slides that nobody sees. And uh, I believe that they should all come together and they all should strive to have the organization survive in the future and not only of the current business, but of, of future businesses. You know, I keep saying that every time, every time I'm, I'm talking with a company that uh, is giving me an example of a great product they just launched, right? And uh, I keep saying, yeah, you, you basically just told me that you launched a moonshot. But my question for you is, can you have a space program? Because it's one thing to, to put a man on the moon, and it's a totally different thing to, to build NASA. Because uh, the idea of a large organization should, should, I mean, what large organizations should strive for is having space programs, meaning that you're able to launch moonshots on a constant basis, not just one pet project of that one executive. And that comes from everybody being committed to doing innovation the right way. Yeah, I love that, man. That's a great analogy. Because if you think about a startup like you have been through yourself, you're constantly pivoting. And if the idea is like, we need to hang our hat on this one product, then you're going to look for every way to protect that product, like the way a, a legacy business does with creating a business model. They're going to actually, like you say, a pet project's going to become the thing you need to hang on to and protect with everything you have. Because if the mindset isn't right, an executive is going to see it as a failure themselves. And it leads me to this a, a lovely thing you say in the book here, is that oftentimes, innovation is seen as R&D spending, and R&D spending generates more patents held by a company, but the number of patents held is not the same as innovation. And I say this in full realization of making these my mistakes myself, because when innovation work is not connected to any strategic vision or North Star, the output is just a random bunch of stuff. You might be lucky and you may become a hero by accident, but it's not by design. And your work is saying that businesses, organizations need to create a system that does not rely on a hero, heroics or luck. And the other thing worth mentioning here is that talking about R&D spending and all of that stuff, essentially what R&D is, and I'm overly simplifying and I hope I'm not going to offend people that are listening to this show that work in R&D, what R&D is doing is essentially transforming money, financial resources into ideas. Right? They, they create a new pattern, they create a new, a new molecule, a new technology, a new whatever, a new vehicle, a new whatever. What innovators are doing, they're converting those ideas back into money. You are going to be totally dysfunctional as, as a company if, if you don't have both sides of the equation covered. However, there are companies that acquire the R&D, and I'm looking at Apple, I'm looking at Tesla, and they are very good at innovating. So they're very good at taking the acquired technology. They're very good at taking an LCD or a microchip, putting it into a product and selling it to you for 20 times what they initially paid for. And I think that's the innovation side. And I think that if you look at the BCG top 50 companies in the world, and then if you look at the Statista top of 20 highest R&D spenders, you're going to see exactly what I'm just saying now. 
the fact that on the top 20 R&D spenders is a bunch of companies that actually don't making on the top 50 most innovative companies. Again, I'm putting myself in the lab here and I'm saying to myself, with the lack of a North Star or a clear direction or a strategy to work to, I'm just going to create stuff because I might stumble across a solution. But the big thing is that oftentimes it doesn't have a problem big enough for that solution. So there's no problem to sell the solution to. If you're in that particular scenario, if you're in that particular situation, I would totally encourage you to go to management and make a case for a corporate-wide transformation, make a case for a very clear innovation strategy. Just make the case for, hey guys, you know, we have this lab, you're pumping a, a, a ton of cash in, in, in us every year. However, I would like to know what I should be working on next year besides the buzzwords I'm just hearing, such as AI, IoT, self-driving cars, whatever. I need to have specific strategic options I should go for. I need an innovation thesis. That's the job, because if you're not going to raise that flag through the things that you are seeing in your lab, you run the risk of your lab being discontinued next time the CEO changes. And I've been there. I've been in a company where the CEO initially was very supportive of innovation. However, he left the company. And then the guy that took over was the ex-CFO. And he was running the company with an Excel sheet. Guess what? Innovation equals liability because equals cost. Of course. So we were the first group that was slashed. Obviously, he had his, his reasons. I mean, for years, we were not able to create good products. Why was that? Because we didn't have a very clear strategy when we were just basing everything we were doing off luck or, or intuition or gut feel. And that was not sustainable in any way. But discontinuing the innovation side of the organization was not the way forward either. You're not exiting the situation. You have to go and try to fix it. Let's jump to the innovation framework itself, Dan, because you start off here by telling us, unlike a product roadmap, which a legacy organization is used to, or even a startup is used to, because they can just focus on one thing, an innovation roadmap is a roadmap for multiple products. Essentially, what's happening is that in a product roadmap, you have certain milestones you want to hit in terms of features delivered, in terms of user stories, in terms of everything a product team is doing. I, I come from a product background. I've been a product owner. So back in my day, product roadmaps were, were very important. I don't, know, I don't know if they're still so relevant today as they used to be seven years ago. But the innovation roadmap is actually a, a different type of roadmap. It's a roadmap that, that encourages learning. So you are not necessarily looking at the features you've delivered as much as you're looking at how many learnings you got in a certain unit of time. Where what does that learning tell you about your vision? What is that learning telling you about your particular business model that you're thinking of bringing to the market? That's basic innovation roadmap. It's a place where you go to and say, okay, how many learnings do I need to get? And on what particular topics do I need to get those learnings in order for me to make it to the next stage? And every product is built on desirability, viability, and feasibility. And an innovation roadmap 
focus is primarily on uncovering desirability first, focus second on, on the feasibility of the idea, and then it becomes the viability of the idea. And actually, it's not linear, so it's not one after the other. You're basically checking all three at the same time, but you have primarily emphasis on desirability first, and then primarily emphasis on feasibility, and then on, on viability. That's the big difference you want in uh, product roadmap or innovation roadmap. Within the product roadmap, then, business models becomes really important. We've done shows on business models before, but I, I love the way you talk about how a shift in business model can absolutely change the focus of a business. An example is a shift from car manufacturer to mobility solution. And we saw this recently with Daimler's car to go And another interesting one I thought was the big question about iMessage versus WhatsApp and is WhatsApp a viable business model? First of all, we need to take a step back and discuss the fact that for large organizations to to survive and to better manage innovation, they should become stellar at managing a portfolio of business models. And again, the emphasis is on business models. I'm highlighting that the companies should manage business models, not products, because you might have 20 products and they all look different to you. However, if they're all based on the same business model, if the underlying assumption behind that business model dies, then all the products that are based on that business model die. Consider an example of a bank, right? They have 101 credit cards. However, the business model is the same. So if people will stop taking credit in the future, or in the present now, right, with with the COVID, a lot of people no longer want to use their credit cards, then it doesn't actually matter how many products you have in that particular business model. So it's very important to do a portfolio of business models. And this was actually one of the lessons I've applied when transforming the large bank in, uh, in Norway from a product portfolio to a business model portfolio. Same, same goes for mobility, same goes for automotive. It doesn't matter if you have the A-class, B-class, C-class, E-class as, as Daimler does, right? Essentially, they are all the same business model. It's pay for an asset, but if people will no longer want to own that asset, then you're left out to dry. This is why it's important for them to, to think about new business models and think of a portfolio of business models. In my opinion, the company of the future is going to be basically a company of companies. A company of the future, a corporation of the future, is going to look more like a VC company than it looks like a 19th century industrial revolution type of organization, where essentially what's going to happen is that you're going to have common resources that are shared, but every single entity is responsible for their own P&L. And if they don't survive, they don't survive. But you're not going to have socialism. You're not going to have money taken from a successful business model and thrown into the other one just for the fun of it. Everybody should be supporting their own PL. And talking about the WhatsApp, right? And WhatsApp versus Messenger. I mean, telco companies in Europe have been sitting on the WhatsApp solution for ages before WhatsApp came along. And the issue there was that they didn't want to invest because they were afraid to lose SMS. Well, Here's a scenario for you. You're either going to cannibalize yourself or somebody else will do it for you. But that legacy solution is still going to die no matter what. And I think or I hope that a lot of executives learn that lesson, especially in telco business. They, they learned a lesson from, from WhatsApp. Is it successful for Facebook? Only time will tell. I don't know. They try having people pay 50 cents for it. Nobody they wanted to do that. I don't know if a communication channel is considered a commodity by the people or not. Again, I think time will tell yeah. if, if the investment was worth for, for Facebook. 
one of the things I often think about this, Dan, is we tend to measure those investments again back to the legacy measurement models. So in profit or return on investment or AOR or whatever it might be. But one of the things you get out of a lot of work like that or investment like that is capability. So you build capability, you build scar tissue, you build muscle, and then that muscle can be used for something else. And oftentimes it's that that the value is. And I think most companies should strive for that. How many companies are doing that? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> so I guess only time will tell. Again, I get that they're under pressure where nobody knows what's going to happen. Now the world has changed immeasurably and tech companies are taking off and small businesses are struggling. So I, I wanted to ask one final question, and this is to do with those smaller businesses, because we focused on legacy organizations or startups, but say I'm a small SME and I'm listening to this show and I'm going to myself, what the heck can I do with this information? What does it mean to me? What would be the message for those people? I think that the message for them is keep doing what got you to the point where you are now. I think in most organizations, what we're seeing in legacy organizations is that they lost that innovation ethos. They, they lost that hunger for becoming better somewhere along the way from the moment when they were founded to the moment they were no longer owned or were managed by the founders or the family. And I think for an SMB that's still family owned, that still have the that still has the founder at the helm, I would just say stick to your guns, keep being innovative, keep questioning yourself every day as you used to when you were building your business to what it is today, and you're you're gonna be just fine in the future. And if at one point you wanna exit or you wanna let your business be managed by somebody, make sure you hire somebody that follows in the same footsteps mindset wise. And then for a message for those people working in the corporate labs, those people who are wondering what the heck's going on at the moment, what would be your message for those people? My message for those people would be that they are essential workers for the organization. However, they need to raise their hand if they don't believe the organization is heading in the right direction when it comes to how they organize innovation. So don't be happy because you have beanbags and a cool office in the downtown district, just make sure you raise your hand and say, hey, in order for me to succeed, I would actually need X, Y, Z to happen at headquarters. I would need to have a bit more of a presentation at the board level. I would need to have a very clear way to integrate my ideas back into the business unit. So don't just be happy to, on the fact that you have a cool office because that can be gone in the next day. <laughs> I just picture and actually that conversation, that difficult conversation. But if another way to do it is send the leader of the business this episode and they'll get the message as well. And fi final, <laughs> final message then for, for the startup, Dan, for those people working in startups, you've been there. What's your message for those people? Be humble and be curious. That's what's going to get you through everything. If you're always going to ask yourself, why does this happen? then the solution is halfway developed. Beautiful. Lovely way to finish. And actually, that's why at the top of the show, I start with that Steve Jobs quote, stay hungry, stay foolish. It's, it's, it means exactly that. It means keep learning and stay hungry for more knowledge. And that idea of beginner's mindset. Dan, where can people find out more about you, the book, 
your future books, etc.? Social media, LinkedIn, um, you can find me under my name, Dan Toma, on Twitter. The handle is Dento underline MA. And don't forget, sign up for the newsletter on the innovationshow.io and you'll be in with a chance to win one of two prizes Dan has kindly offered us. One is a copy of the Corporate Startup book and the second is a prize worth €480, which is the Corporate Startup video course on thecorporatestartupbook.com. Many thanks to our sponsor, Microsoft for Startups, and to our guest today, author of The Corporate Startup, How Established Companies Can Create Successful Innovation Ecosystems, Dan Toma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.